Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, so that everyone believes in him may may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe in him are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. This is the word of the Lord. And maybe seated. Way to go, Rose. Well done. Uh, heads up. The prayer time today. Um, would like for you to decide for the first time or decide for the millionth time what you're going to do with this cross. (laughs) Kelly and I had the opportunity to travel to Washington, D.C. not too long ago. We happened to have been in Washington, D.C. when the body of Billy Graham was lying in honor. Now, not in state. Um, That's reserved for particular kinds of people within our structure, but to be to be allowed to lie in honor there means that you are an honored person, an honored citizen, citizen of the United States, and Billy Graham was there uh, lying in honor, nicknamed, nicknamed the nation's pastor, America's pastor. Um, perhaps many of you in the room have been to a Billy Graham crusade. If you have ever been to a Billy Graham crusade, then you know that John 3.16 is a pretty important verse. Truth of the matter is, John 3.16 is the most popular verse in the Bible. Folks that don't know anything about the Bible seem to still know something about John 3.16, which makes it both incredibly powerful and at least mildly dangerous. Context, you guys. Context is everything. I will tell you, I will tell you that one of the hardest things for a preacher to ever do is to preach on a verse that you all already know. It's much easier for us to preach on verses that you don't even know are in the Bible. Like, what, that's an, I thought Ben Franklin said that. That's, I can't believe that was in the Bible. <laughs> but when we tackle a verse that you all can rattle off by heart, that is a challenge. That's a struggle. Because up here, we're concerned that if or when we say something about this verse that you don't already know or don't already hold dear, that you just you click us off or reject, or hold at an arm's reach. 
I'm gonna do that to you today. I have bad news and good news. The bad news is I think we have been under-interpreting, under-acknowledging this very important verse. The great news is I think it means more than we have been saying. The great news is this verse lays claim and offers opportunity at a depth that we typically don't reach. I will say this to you. Everything as it has to do with the interpretation of this verse, but beyond that, everything as it has to do with your participation in faith hinges on, absolutely hinges on your understanding of this. If you understand this to be the symbol of how angry God gets at sin, such that God has to have some sort of bloody sacrifice to change God's mind about us, you're going to read John 3.16 one way. But if, rather than being a symbol of the anger of God, the impatience of God, the intolerance of God, if you see this as the symbol of how far love will go to make love's point, it is the opposite of impatient. It is the opposite of intolerant. This is how far love will go to demonstrate that there is something about God and God's mind and God's heart, where you're concerned, that does not ever change. If you see this as a symbol of love, suffering sacrificial love, then you will read John 3.16 and the verses around it and receive it differently. And by the way, you will do faith differently. You'll do faith differently. Uh, let's go ahead and, and skip, if we would. Can we go ahead and skip to the, uh, the picture of the, here we go. This is our sermon series for Lent, the devil and the details. The detail today that we have to be careful of is how we go about interpreting John 3.16 and in a broader sense, how we go about interpreting this particular symbol. Now, there is a snake that we will reference today, and I have already let people know. We've got some folks in the room who are very sensitive to snakes, and they have said to me, and quite loudly actually, the next time, so because before in a sermon I've showed a snake, even showed a video clip of a slithering snake, and uh, three people passed out. So, I let the folks know that we are going to show pictures of snakes today because there's a snake that shows up and plays a fairly prominent role in these verses today. Uh, and so I'm just letting you know that snakes, I think, have gotten a bad rap. I, I think that we have, because of that Genesis 1 story, and maybe because of the movie, Passion of the Christ, and maybe because of some other symbolism we see at the end of the book, uh, so in the book of Revelation, I think we have sort of likened uh, the devil to a snake. And truthfully, there's some evidence there, right? There are times when this snake is portrayed as having evil intent for sure. I'm just not sure it's always the case. Not sure it's always the case. In fact, you can make the case that today, the snake involved was a means of salvation. What? Yeah. Another passage I could have read today comes from Numbers chapter 21. And Numbers 21 is another book that tells a very familiar story. 
the people of God are wandering around post-Exodus. They're wandering around in the wilderness. And let me kind of give you a a quick uh, summary of what it is that they're doing. Wandering and complaining. That's it. That's what they're doing. They're wandering and complaining. And they complain, they complain. In fact, the book of Numbers catalogs all of these complaints. And this is the fifth one. This is the last one. And this one is like the worst one. God seems to have had enough when the people of God start complaining. The people spoke out against God and against Moses. Now, mind you, God has just carried them to a victory in the first few verses of this very chapter. And one verse later, they say this. They complain against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water, and we detest this miserable food. And by the way, which miserable food was it? It was the miserable food that God had gifted them. This manna stinks. (laughs) This quail's kind of gamey. We detest this miserable food. Well, I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. I am not going to bother to explain to you why God does what God does here, but here's what God does. God is angry and sends venomous snakes to bite them, and many people die. Amen. Well, let's stand to be dismissed today. (laughs) This is rough stuff here today. Should have had my guest speaker preach on this one today. The people came to Moses, this is verse 7, and said, we have sinned. By speaking against the Lord and against you, pray to the Lord and take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a poisonous serpent, a bronze representation of this poisonous serpent, and set it on a pole, and and listen to this, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. That's crazy. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. What it does not say is that the people were no longer bitten. It says when they were bitten, they would look at this bronze representation and live. They were saved, saved as they looked at the snake. The snake reflected back to them the damage that they had done to their own circumstance and their own own circumstances. (laughs) Circumcision was totally not the right word there. (laughs) Not in my notes. They were saved as they looked at this bronze serpent that reflected back to them the deathliness of their situation. Not just that there were serpents that were snapping at their heels, but that they complained against God. And here's the thing, that they did not trust God. That they did not trust God. That they did not believe the promises of God as they had been communicated to them. This snake reminded them and reflected back to them their failures and their sins and the damage that sin does. And as they looked at this bronze representation, though perhaps they were still being bitten, as they looked at this representation, they were reminded, bad things happen when I don't trust, but I can live if I do trust. Bad things happen when I don't trust, but there is life and hope and future when I do trust. One of my favorite Theologians, a woman by the name of Barbara Brown Taylor says this about this particular story. If looking up at the serpent reminded the people to lift their hearts to God, then the snake 
was a sacrament which opens our eyes to a different reality, a different presence than we would have expected. Looking up at it, now this is important, you won't get this, these verses in John if you don't get this. Looking up at it, they looked through it to their only physician, who alone was their health, their salvation, and their cure. That's good stuff right there. Fast forward. Man by the name of Nicodemus. He has probably been a witness to all that Jesus did, if you remember last week when Jesus ransacked the temple and sort of laid claim to this title of Messiah. It was an eye-opening sort of experience, and Jesus was immediately in confrontation and in conflict with these other people who thought they were the representation of what God wanted in the world, and here comes Jesus, and he knocks over the entire system, quite literally. Nicodemus was one of the teachers one of the Pharisees, one of the people tasked to tell the stories and to get it all right. He saw something in Jesus that was compelling. He saw something. And so he went to Jesus in the dead of night because there was danger out there for associating with Jesus. And so he goes to Jesus in the dead of night and says, what in the world are you doing? The first several verses, and I'm just going to read a few of these verses, detail this conversation, which at times, has to have been uncomfortable for Nicodemus. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And then Jesus unleashes this on him. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God. Okay, stop. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. That is not the time after you die. It is the right here, right now, and this is a good place for me to tell you, this is one of the ways that we have underappreciated John 3.16. We have underappreciated John 3.16, and perhaps all of Christianity and all of faith when we believe that somehow it's just about the hereafter. Now, you're not surprised to hear me say this, but hear me say it again. If your faith is just about the hereafter and not about the here, it's not Christian faith. Now, God cares for the hereafter. I'm not saying that God doesn't care for the hereafter. And God is big enough to care for the hereafter. But hear me. <laughs> God's participation here is about more than mansions and streets of gold. It's about recovered streets and repaired breaches. It's about you. It's about your household. It's about our city it's about our state and our country. It's about our world. We are tasked to return creation to God. And that is a here thing, not a hereafter thing. So you don't believe in the hereafter? Yes. All right. Say it, write it down somewhere. Our pastor does believe in the hereafter. Are you like that? Good. All right. Write this just beneath it. But he believes just as much in the here. And I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it, someone's going to be frustrated with me. Please, if you get frustrated with me again, email Walt Crow, all right? <laughs> I'm going to say it. If your faith has only to do with the hereafter, it is not the faith of Christianity. This is supposed to make a difference tomorrow. Gracious, it's supposed to make a difference today, right now. You are, I am, we are supposed to be different 
because of our Christianity, because of this. Okay, we'll get back to this. Jesus answered him, very truly, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again or born from above. It can mean either one. In fact, it means both. And hang on to both. Nicodemus does not get it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? To which Jesus said, oh, come on, would you stop reading scripture so literally? Listen to it. Listen to scripture. Later on, Nicodemus, still puzzled, says, how can these things be? Now Jesus is frustrated, and this is where it starts to get tense. For Nicodemus, Jesus answered him, and you're a teacher of Israel? You, yet you don't get this? That it's about world change, it's about now change, it's about here? More importantly, it's about love and grace first, not law first, Nicodemus. It's about love and grace first. You know I love you, you know I do, but I'm gonna step toward you again, hear this. Not only is Christianity a here thing as opposed to a simply hereafter thing, and if you get that wrong, I'm not sure you're getting Christian faith right, what Jesus is about to say to Nicodemus is clear indication that if we lead with law as opposed to leading with love and grace, again, it's not the faith of Christ. That is great news for the prohibitive majority of the planet. It is not great news for the fundamentalist that really, really enjoys beating somebody else with the law. That person is mistaken. Then Jesus goes on to say this. Okay, let me see if I can explain this to you, Nicodemus. Remember that story in the Old Testament in Numbers? Remember that story? Where's this bronze snake, thank you. <laughs> this bronze snake that, when lifted up and placed on a pole, would remind the people of the ramifications of their decisions and the ramifications of their sins, but would also remind the people of the provision God had made in the midst of all of that, in the midst of their terrible decisions, while they were still being bitten. <clears throat> It was also a reminder that this God is somehow bigger than all of that and offers up hope and future and grace. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up. And by the way, that word could also have been interpreted exalted. So lifted up or exalted. And by the way, you're supposed to again <laughs> include both definitions as you sort through these verses. The Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Oh, man, this is huge. This is huge. The cross is the evidence that God loves us. The cross is all the evidence we should ever need that God loves us this much. And everyone, everyone is granted an opportunity to say yes to this love or no. By the way, 
you still have the opportunity to say yes and receive this love that will absolutely change the DNA of your life. Or you can say no, and I've seen them. Sometimes they go to church, sometimes they're pastors. I'm not gonna tell you who. (laughs) But what if we said yes? What if we said yes to this love as demonstrated by this cross? And by the way, this sense of being exalted here is not just limited to the cross. In the, in the mind of the fourth evangelist, in the mind of, the, the, of John, the author here, in the mind of John, Christ being lifted up is not just the crucifixion, but it is also the resurrection and even the ascension. All of that, all of that is the means whereby we understand Christ to be lifted up. Look at the victory. You guys, listen. Look at the victory that love accomplishes. It's as if God is saying in the cross, I know what there is to know about you. I have suffered all that you can dish out and still I love you and I choose you. Doug, sometimes I say amen better than that. That was a really good place for them to say amen. So I'm going to give you another chance. I have a visitor here. But hear this. I don't know if you wear a cross around your neck. I don't know if you have crosses on your walls in your office. I do. If you have crosses on your walls at home, I do. Crosses, they're really important. But it's not because I feel like somehow, okay, I got to surround myself. I have to surround myself with the Um, evidence of God's anger at my sin so that I'm sure not to sin and anger God again. But I surround myself with these symbols that tell me every time I look around, the symbols that tell me every time that God's mind about me is made up and that God chooses me though God knows me and that even this couldn't change God's heart for me or for you. I used to do faith by fear and guilt. Now, faith is grateful response. And somehow it's better now than it was before. Now, let's read this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Okay, John, you said it was here and not hereafter. What I said was, it is here as well as hereafter. Okay? And you need to hear me say this about belief. Because now we're gonna get into the second part of our passage today. What do we mean when we say belief? Sometimes in order to answer the question, are you a believer, someone will say, I believe in God. I believe in Christ. I believe even in some of these stories. But sometimes what he or she might mean is this, I give mental assent. I believe that these things happened. I believe that this particular God exists. I believe that Jesus existed at least. I believe, I give mental assent, I can make my mouth say these particular words. That is not what the gospel has in mind when it uses the word believes. 
if you believe, it has very little to do with your mouth and everything to do with your life. This is harsh. God does not necessarily care how well you can articulate the faith with your mouth. God is much more concerned with how your time, your check register, young people, we used to have these things called checks, checkbooks. (laughs) God is much more concerned with how your calendar, how your check register, how your entertainment habits, how your relationships articulate your faith. Listen, believing that it happened does not make you a Christian. That, this thing that happened, changes the way you go to work or go home and participate in your family changes who you are, that this thing that happened changes you, that is what scripture means when it uses the language of belief. And when you believe, it's not just, again, I believe that God in Christ has conquered death. So yes, I believe there there to be an eternal aspect to life. But this here does not mean innumerable days. This means boundless life, unending presence of God here. Are you with me yet? God is not in the business of designing a new heaven so that this place can deteriorate. God has in mind that God, perhaps even through God's people, would be a part of the process whereby all of creation is restored and God's presence is enjoyed in infinite sorts of ways. That's what's meant here by eternal life. And this is what God wants. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. Again, if this, if this is simply a symbol of God's intolerance and anger towards sin, then you have trouble with verse 17. God didn't send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be salvaged, saved, rescued. By what? The anger of God? No. By the unchanging, never-ending love and grace of God. What did you think was going to change the world? My deeply held convictions about who's who's in and who's out. That's what's going to change. No, it's not. It's going to fracture the world and the church, by the way. But if you were to say yes to this, and then your life would become a tangible yes. Hear that again. If your life becomes a tangible yes, so that what you believe is actually embodied, then you become part of the means whereby the body of Christ, the body of Christ restores creation. Okay, those who believe in him are not condemned. Now this is tough stuff here. I told you I was gonna give you a chance to decide again. And here's the decision. Here's your decision, ready? I'm gonna boil it down. Yes or no? 
Yes is, I will drink deeply of this love that comes to me. God moves first. God is the first mover. God moves toward me first. And I will say yes to this. And I will respond to the I love you with an I love you too that gets embodied. There's skin on it, right? Or no, I'm not going to be changed by this. The no isn't necessarily, I'm going to follow the devil. The no is, I won't be changed by this. Oh man, that's, that's tough for a couple of you. I see it in your faces. Hear this again. When you say no today, it's not that you are choosing to follow an alternative God, like the devil, let's say, right? If you say no, it's that you choose not to be captured by this love and grace. And you'll be condemned. John, you're typically so nice. You never say that word. Why did you say it right then? Well, here's what we mean. Let's say, and God, that this would happen within our lifetime that someone would come up with the definitive cure for all cancer like that and make it available to everyone so that everyone would have the opportunity, opportunity to be saved or salvaged from this terrible, gut-wrenching, I hate it with all I am disease. But let's say you say, look at that line, I don't wanna go stand in that line. I'm gonna opt out and not make myself available to the hope and the future and the cure in some level. That is the sense in which you have pronounced your own condemnation. So, what we're saying is, Christ on this cross demonstrates the depth, but also the breadth of this love and grace that is available to all the world. And all who say yes to this grace are saved. Those who say, I'm good, thanks, have judged themselves. Because they have not believed, and again, there's a lot of skin on that word believed, in the name of the only Son of God. Another good theologian, another good voice says this about this event. This event, this one, puts an end to the old course of the world. As from now on, there are only believers and unbelievers, so that there are also now only saved and lost, those who have life and those who are in death. This is because the event is grounded in the, what? Love of God, that love which gives life to faith, but which must become judgment in the face of unbelief. Here's the decision that's in front of you. Yes, I will be loved like this and allow this love to rearrange my life. Or no, I won't. 
Yeah. There will be people who will attend week after week, right? Who will not allow their perhaps business practices to be changed by this different way of seeing life and business. Yes, there are people who will prefer the other way of doing faith. Well, there are very clear lines so you can pretty clearly see who's in and who's out. There will be some people who will say, "Mm, this seems a little bit too easy at some level. This seems a little bit too nebulous and vague. I'm out. But they may still come. They may keep coming. In fact, please, if that's you, keep coming. Hopefully we build a warm enough campfire here that eventually you'll get warm. But love beckons for you in the cross. Now, Jesus up on this cross is hard to look at. But like that serpent in the desert, Jesus up on this cross shows us what sin does. Christ on this cross shows us what love does. So yeah, the cross shows us what sin does. Sin damages. Sin chooses itself. Sin exploits. And here's the thing. God knows that about all of us and still chooses us because what Christ does on this cross is absorb it. He takes it. He even says at a couple different points, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Yeah, we can see what sin does on this cross, but more importantly, we can see what love does. Love wins. Time to decide. If you are helping us today, would you please come help us to set this table? If you are visiting with us today, we take communion by intinction here. That means that in a moment you'll be asked to stand to your feet, to exit your pew to the left, and then to come forward with your hands cupped, your hands cupped to receive this grace. You can't grab it. You can't take it. You can't buy it. You can't charge it. It is given to you as a gift, this grace. Heavenly Father, bless these elements and use them, God, to build us, to nourish us, to strengthen us, to move us somewhere we never could have gone on our own. May grace, Lord, be the means whereby we are built toward Christ's likeness. And so yes, in a second I'll ask you to stand to your feet, to exit your pew to the left, your left, to come forward with your hands cupped, As you approach someone holding a plate of bread, that person will take a piece of that bread, snap off some, place it into your hands, look you square in the eye and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. It is akin to looking at Jesus upon the cross, reflecting to you in that moment both the damage that sin does, it is the broken body, but also what love does. You're invited back to this table week after week after week.
But don't eat it just yet. Take that piece of bread and dip it into the cup. Someone standing right there will be holding a cup. When you do, that person will look you in the eye, Rose, and say, the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat. And then decide, people. <laughs> decide whether or not you're a good, firm yes today. Find a place to pray. Now, there are lots of places to pray. You could go to one of these side padded altars. If you do, we will assume that you are there for a prayer for healing. Any kind of healing works. Any kind of, any kind of pain works. Any kind of physical healing that you might be in, in need of or mental or emotional, relational. Someone will meet you at that side altar and pray that prayer for healing and anoint you with oil. If you come to one of these front kneeling benches, we won't assume a thing, but we will at some point come and touch you on the head or the neck or the shoulder just to let you know that you are not alone. I want to encourage you, too, to consider making a special trip to the baptismal font here. Just touch the water. May the cool temperature of the water jar your memory of your baptism. The moment when you aligned yourself with the people of God, the body of Christ, to accomplish the purposes of God in Christ. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat of it, remember me. Later on he took the cup held it up before them and said, and this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, and every time you drink it, remember me. Remember, if you're one of our licensed ministers, even if you didn't make it down here at the front, we want for you to gather here at this altar, because after I pray prayers of confession, Jason will pray prayers of intercession, and then Dr. Green will close us out with a prayer of commission. All over the sanctuary now, if you would, stand to your feet, exit your pew to the left, and come forward with your hands cup to receive these gifts of God meant for the people of God.
good time for you to find your way next to somebody here, somebody for whom you can be the tangible expression of God's grace and companionship. I'm going to pray a brief prayer of confession before turning it over to Jason, who will then turn it over to Dr. Green. But if you would, come and find your way to this altar and put your hand on somebody's shoulder. Let him, let her know. Sure enough, we're not alone. Heavenly Father, we confess. We confess, Lord, that there are times when we have underinterpreted this incredible verse, this life-giving verse. We have made it mean less than what you intend for it to mean. Forgive us for that. And, Lord, show us a way forward. Show us how we can live into this verse more deeply, more holistically. Give us this deep impression that you are intimately involved with the here and not just the hereafter. The now that is moved along by your first move of love and grace. 
fund our imaginations and give us ways to see how this, this movement started in love and grace can in fact change things. Cure us, God, of our, of our doubts and our tendency to, to drop back into a default mode, which is to believe that things change only when forced to change. Remind us, Lord, that we are your chosen. Remind us, Lord, that there is something powerful about being chosen and loved, especially when we recognize that you love us and choose us, though you know all that there is to know about us. And give us the capacity and the courage, the integrity to say a deep yes with all kinds of skin on it. And now here is God as we pray for one another. In these moments of prayers of intercession, I'm going to list quite a few names in the life of our church who need us as a body of Christ to come alongside of them in prayer. And so would you pray along with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd be with many who are recovering from surgery, including Pastor John's son, Drew, as he recovers from ACL surgery. God, we continue to pray for Lyda Chesney and ask God that you would continue to heal her body, this precious, very little one. Lord, we ask that you would continue to be with Ken Hardy and heal his body. And as a church, we now pray for all who we know who are struggling with cancer, asking for healing, specifically in prayer for our friend Ken. We ask that God would continue to come alongside of our pastor, Dr. Gerard Tashton, as he recovers from surgery, and those who've been recently out of the hospital, like Donnie Demura. We pray for those who are grieving. Yesterday, we gathered here and celebrated the life of Debbie McKenzie. Ask you'd be with Bobby, with Josh, and with Sam, Bobby and Josh, who are here with us this morning. God, I ask that you would come alongside of a few of our families who are grieving the loss of a couple of grandparents this week, and Christy Brugan and our friend Jenny Hancock. You'd be with both of these families as they mourn the loss of two grandfathers this week. Lord, I ask you'd be with those in immediate need, and I ask that God you'd come alongside of Linda Starkey. I don't know every detail, but she has fallen and has hurt herself. Brand new member last week in life of our church. So God, please be with Linda and be with Shauna York, her daughter, as she cares for Linda. Lord, as we pray for intercession, we also pray in these moments for our friends around the world, like the Johnson family, as we just have commissioned and sent them away to Denmark. Would you come alongside of them and be with our friends in Zambia, in Haiti, Toronto, and Cactus, Texas. And finally, God, as we ask for all of those who face an uncertain future, whether that's with their own employment or whether that's with they just don't know what the future holds, and including among those, we pray for our teachers and pray for broken systems and ask God that you would bring a sense of your presence to all of our teachers who've gathered here this morning. Would you be with us, God, this morning as we continue in prayer and hear this commissioning prayer and then Lord's Prayer from our pastor, Steve. Most merciful God, as I look at these wonderful people, I'm reminded of my own calling 
and commissioning. I am so thankful, Father, that we don't choose ourselves, but you choose us. And you have called each one of these into that last day's ministry called the kingdom that is already at hand in the life and the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. Each of these people, we believe, Lord, that you have placed your own call upon their life to be partners in bringing in your dream and your vision for all of creation. And now, Father, as a congregation, we want to affirm what you have already done in them. We affirm that you have called them. We affirm that you will guide them. We affirm that you will speak through them, that you will empower them, and that you will be reflected in and through them. And so we commission them to last day's ministry that is here and now. We commission them to be a part of your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May they know that they do not walk alone. They walk with you, but they also walk among us as we walk with them. So bless them, we pray. And now remind all of us as we pray the prayer that your Son and our Savior taught us to pray. Remind all of us that we are participants in the last days that's at hand. Pray with me, would you? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 